0: I want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I want to introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and as I say almost every week, it is my privilege to be opening up the Word of God and to to be sharing with you from that precious book. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab it, turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be in chapter 8 this morning, and I'll be working through verses 31 through 38. Let me just say this at the beginning. Last week was a mountaintop uh, kind of experience or a mountaintop kind of a week. Uh, really, Peter, he, let's just give him credit. He nailed it, right? He nailed it. Jesus said, hey, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter says, hey, uh, some people say that, you know, that you're this guy. Some people say you're that guy. Some people say you're one of these guys. Uh, and then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at Jesus, first one to speak up, and he says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. So it was quite an, an incredible morning, especially for our guy, Peter. He had come to the right conclusion, and yet this morning we'll see that today he came also to the wrong application. He had the right conclusion, but the way that he applied that truth that the Spirit of God had revealed to him was incorrect. Jesus' identity was, the fullness of it wasn't really clear in Peter's mind, and so he came to the wrong application. It's as if the, the man from Roto-Rooter, he shows up, right? That plumber, he, you've called him, he shows up, he walks up the steps, he knocks on the door, you open the door and you say, you're the plumber, right? And he says, yep, I'm the plumber. And you say, well, let me show you to the fuse box. You see, you've made the right, the, uh, the right conclusion, right? This man is indeed the plumber, but he has no idea as to what to do to help you and your problem as it relates to electrical issues. In a similar way, Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Messiah, and yet we're going to see this morning that he's made some wrong applications about this Messiah. And so let's look at Mark chapter 8, and we're actually going to back up and read from verse 27, which was the text for last week, and we'll read towards the end of the chapter. This is what God's word says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God and after it has come with power. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father again we come to you this morning and we simply ask this would you bless your word in our hearing this morning I pray that as I speak that your spirit would quicken our hearts and minds that we would see Jesus more fully our sin more clearly and that we would run more steadfastly to holiness into eternity. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, as I typically do, I want to kind of give you a, a front-loaded main point or big idea of the, the text this morning. And, and that idea is this, that God's kingdom, God's kingdom is incompatible with any other kingdom. God's kingdom is incompatible with any other other kingdom he his kingdom is completely different from our kingdom or from our kingdoms and therefore they do not work together keep that in mind as we work through this text there in verse 31 this is what the word of God says and he began to teach them his disciples that the son of man what does he say about this son of man well Peter had uh, finally come to the right conclusion about Jesus's identity. He knew that Jesus was, the, in fact, the Messiah. However, Jesus had work to do in regard to helping Peter and the other disciples really come to understand the implications of his Messiahship. And so he begins to teach them about that Messiah, this, this Christ, he begins to teach them about him. I want you to remember that Jesus, he's not introducing the concept of Messiah, they knew full well about what this Messiah would be, but they still in that day were unclear as to the, 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 the nuances that Jesus was going to be highlighting. When Jesus finally speaks of, of his messianic status, it's, it's not to claim the common understanding as all those men had, especially the disciples, but really it was to redefine it redefine it in a way that was beyond recognition. As Jesus began to speak about the Messiah and to tell them what it would look like, perhaps for many of them it was unrecognizable. It's interesting that Jesus uses so many titles and themes for himself. Even in this passage here, he asks Peter about who people say that, they, that he is. And, and, and Peter responds, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one. But what, move, what, what, what continues to happen is that Peter then, or Jesus, begins to talk about the Son of Man and what the, the Son of Man actually is. I want to kind of help you to unpack some of these ideas. At the risk of oversimplification, uh, I, I want to show you what he's saying here. Jesus is telling us that the Son of Man, which is a, a title signifying Jesus as the representative of Israel that he will inherit a kingdom. And in connection with that, he's also the suffering servant, as we'll see in this text. And so the son of man, that, that is the, the leader of this new kingdom, as a representative of God's people, will make his way to that place by being the suffering servant of Isaiah. And so the son of man, reigning in God's kingdom, the suffering servant, suffering, will become We'll we'll come together and therefore we'll, we'll get the Messiah. So what does Messiah actually mean? Well, it's the son of man, the ruling king, and it's the suffering servant come together. That is our Messiah. In other words, he's the anointed king who will usher in God's new kingdom. He's the anointed prophet who speaks the very words of God. And he's the anointed priest who doesn't only make a sacrifice for God's people, but he is in fact the sacrifice for God's people. And so that is the Messiah. That is the Son of Man. And as verse 31 indicates, he must suffer many things. Before we talk about suffering many things, I want you to see this word, must. Why must Jesus suffer many things? One reason is it was his divinely appointed purpose. God the Father The first person in the Trinity had determined that Jesus would suffer according to the plan of redemption, settled before the foundation of the world. And furthermore, Jesus must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. Why? To fulfill Scripture. The prophet Isaiah, as we spoke about just a moment ago, he had a lot to say about the servant of the Lord, particularly that he would be, what, a suffering servant. Until now, there was really no uh, thought that the Messiah would be any kind of a sufferer. Surely not a suffering servant, as Isaiah tells us. The Messiah was always thought of as a conquering one and not as a victim. or Somebody that would in some way be defeated or laid low. And so it was a bit scandalous for Jesus to connect these two ideas. And yet it was the will of God. As we see in Isaiah 53... Speaking of, of this suffering servant, he was despised. He was rejected. He's called a man of sorrows. It said that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Furthermore, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our punishment is upon him, and by his wounds, we, his people. Are healed. Verse 7, that same chapter, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In verse 10, it says of Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to. To crush him. And so this suffering servant, this son of man, he would suffer. But he would also be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. Now, those three governing bodies, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, this is pretty interesting that all three of these guys, all, the, all three of these groups of people made up what's called the Sanhedrin. And that's the Jewish high court. It's the most influential political and religious authority in all of Israel. And these elite, they were also waiting for the Messiah. They're also waiting and looking even for the Holy One of God, the anointed of God. So who would have thought that Jesus would be the, the Son of Man, suffering servant, the Messiah, and that when he comes, he would be rejected, by his own people by the sanhedrin no one would have thought that no one would have thought that the sanhedrin the the leaders of god's people would reject him and yet john chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 testifies to that very thing speaking of jesus it says this the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus, testifying of his own ministry as the Messiah, says that my own people, they'll reject me. And sure enough, as we'll see in a few months as we walk, continue our walk through the gospel of Mark, that takes place. You see, Peter wasn't the only one that would reject Jesus' definition as Messiah. Moving on, it says of this Son of Man, this Messiah, that he will be killed and after three days he'll rise again. After three days he'll rise again. And so not only does Jesus not fit the messianic stereotype of the day, but he explains his mission. He explains his task and he does so in shocking contrast the meaning of his life and mission is not finally about victory and success or I'm sorry it is finally about victory and success but along the way he will encounter rejection he will encounter suffering and our Messiah would encounter death at this point in time something has shifted in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples you see, now he's not mincing words anymore. And he says as much in no uncertain terms. In verse 32, and he said, and he said this plainly. Well, if you contrast what Jesus has just said about the Messiah, about the Son of Man, with Mark 2, verse 20, this is what it says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they in that day will fast. Contrast that with what Jesus just said. He's speaking very clear to them now. The time is getting nearer. They're about to head towards Jerusalem. And Mark shows this long extended arc as Jesus walks that way. And as they begin that journey, it's ever more clear the identity of the Messiah. And what begins to happen at that point in time? I love this next verse just because I'm not the one doing it, and Peter's kind of in the hot seat. But look at this next verse. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Just think about that. Don't you just have pity for Peter? Poor guy. We'll find out. You hold your pity. You might need it for yourself here in just a little bit. Have you ever thought... That you and another person were, were extremely clear on a course of action. You, you came together. You settled on a plan. You're going to go execute that plan. And it's obvious at that point in time that you were on the same page. Maybe, you, you, uh, maybe as, as, you, as you go out and they go do their thing and you go do their thing or you go do your thing rather. Um, you think, man, what, what's happened here? Just like five minutes ago, we were so clear on what we were to do. We had everything together. I was going was to go low. He was going to go high. And we were going to take this problem out. And all of a sudden, it's like, what, what happened? They came, they've come to a completely different conclusion. And I thought I was so clear. Well, it's, it's kind of like that. That's kind of like what's happening right here with Jesus. He explains in his mind, it's incredibly clear and be be sure of this, that Jesus has not failed to explain something as the, the fault is not on Jesus, but the fault is on Peter. He hears Jesus speaking and yet he hears something completely different. It's probably a coupling of wishful thinking along with selective reasoning, right? Or selective hearing, right? At the, at the beginning, there's this ideal in the mind of the hearer, in the mind of Peter, there's this expectation. I know what Messiah is. And so all along the way, as Jesus is teaching and talking and showing and demonstrating, Peter is trying to piece things to, these things together. And he had his initial ideal. He knew what to expect when it came to the Messiah. And so things that didn't fit the model in his mind, he cast to the side and, of course, things that, did fit, he held on to. So they have this expectation. They anticipate hearing information that aligns with their expectation. And what doesn't? They simply discard. At any rate, Peter has heard enough at this point, though. Wait a minute. Things are beginning to, to separate out too cleanly, too clearly. Jesus is going one way. He's going another. It's time to scold him. It's time to take Jesus aside separately and reprimand him. Peter says to Jesus, you can't talk like that. Don't you even know who the Messiah is? Don't you know anything about the Messiah? First Corinthians chapter one, verses 22 to 25, this is what it says. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach the Messiah crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Peter his ideal Messiah, and Jesus' true Messiah are beginning to separate very clearly. I want to ask you this morning, what are the chances of that happening to you? What are the chances that you, having spent time with Jesus, having spent time even in his word, that you would come away having a slight misunderstanding, perhaps a drastic deviation as to the identity of the person, Jesus, the Messiah. Is it possible? I would say yes. How long has Peter traveled with Jesus? Heard the teaching of this great man, this miracle worker, this prophet of God, this one who claims to be the very son of God. And yet still he's missed it. I think as we proceed, it's, it would be wise for all of us to proceed with caution, to proceed with humility. You see, because here we begin to see the emergence of another messianic theory. We thought they were all on the same page. We rejoiced when we heard Peter's testimony. And now we see, wait a minute, they're talking about two different things. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter here acting as a spokesman for the group. It's likely that that the entire group of of disciples, they're thinking contrary to Jesus' teaching that this can't happen. It's possible that Peter is really just speaking up for the group as Jesus offers his counter-rebuke. He wants all the disciples to hear. It's a a heavy counter-rebuke. Peter, in a sense, is given another possible nickname here. His name originally being Simon, Jesus giving him a new name. Peter, you're going to be Rock, Petra. And now he's calling him Satan. Uh, That's one of those nicknames, maybe like one your father gave you, that you hope doesn't stick, right? Peter hopes that people forget that. You're the guy that Jesus called Satan. I mean, like, what do you do then? But why why Satan? Why would Jesus look to Peter and say, get behind me, Satan? Do you remember Jesus' time of temptation? We went through this a few months ago. Jesus' time of temptation there in the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He's tempted by the accuser of the brethren, by Satan himself, to skip the suffering parts And jump jump straight into the exalted, glorified state that his father had in mind for him. Satan wanted Jesus to skip the hunger. Satan wanted Jesus to skip the cross. But Jesus rebuked Satan then. He would not give in to temptation to abstain from the path that his father had put him on. Jesus wouldn't do it. He wouldn't disobey his father, not for Satan, and surely not for Peter. So now Peter is standing in the way of Jesus. He's standing on the path of Jesus. He's standing in front of Jesus and not behind. Leading the pack and not following. And in a figurative sense, he's holding him back. And Jesus rebukes him and says, stand down, Satan. I imagine the scolding cut Peter. It's a painful thing to hear from your master. And yet it was necessary and it was true. What does he say about Peter? He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather you're setting your mind on the things of man. It calls to my memory Colossians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, warns us. He warns the church of Colossae and he warns us as well. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And not according to Messiah, to the one Messiah that Jesus has told us about. Peter's doing that very thing. There's a human way to conceive of the Messiah, and there's a godly way. The traditions of man, they deceive us. They tempt us. They draw us away from the truth. And church, it can even trick you if you're not careful, as Paul warns us. And we have to be on guard Or not slipping into human tradition? What makes sense? Some philosophy. The warning of Jesus, it echoes through my mind as I hear Paul's warning. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this for you? Did we not do that for you? Were we not one of yours? And in that day, what will Jesus respond to those? To many to many who claim to be Christ many who even go to church what will our lord say in that day depart from me i never knew you could be said also depart from me you never knew me many will be deceived so consider your own heart. Do that in humility this morning. We're so used to thinking immediately of all the ones around us that we know that might possibly be deceived. That might possibly say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Think of your own life this morning in humility and ask the Lord to search your heart Not all who claim the Lord are known by him. Verse 34, moving forward. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. You see, this message that the disciples, particularly Peter, that that they needed to hear, it's also a message that the crowd needs to hear. And so Jesus doesn't just call Peter. Hey, Peter's right there. Peter, stay right here. Peter probably melted down into a puddle of goo and just wanted to slither into a hole there. No, Peter, stay right here. Disciples, you come over here too. Call the crowds around. They need to hear this as well. Get over here. So the crowds, they gather around, and as they do, Jesus begins to teach some of the basic principles of the kingdom of God that he, the Son of Man, the suffering servant, God's Messiah, was ushering in. This is what he says. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would enter into the kingdom of God, listen up. Remember Jesus, when he called his disciples, what did he say to them? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I preached a sermon a little while ago out of Mark 1. He says just that. Remember, we talked about this idea that when you follow somebody, it's literally and figuratively true that you will follow them according to their philosophy and to their teaching. But physically, you'll also follow them. As they lead the way, you'll walk behind them. And you're not walking on some special trail that's been paved or or has concrete, but you're walking the dusty, dirty roads of the Middle East. And as you follow your master, what happens? The dirt that is on his sandals will be on yours. The dust that he kicks up will be on you. Jesus is saying, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would get my dust on their clothes, this is what they need to do. First off, you need to know you're gonna get dirty. Furthermore, did furthermore, you need to let him deny himself. And this doesn't re, uh, refer to some uh, physical abuse, self-rejection, self-hatred, self-loathing, or even disown, uh, disowning particular sins. What Jesus is saying when he says, let him deny himself is to place God's will before your own will. To place God's will above and before your own will. It means to renounce all claims of self and claims to self. No no longer making your own interests and your own desires, your own wants the supreme chief concern in your life. To deny yourself would be to put God and his desires first. I love 1 Corinthians 5. What does it say? We make it our aim to what? To please God. You want to follow Jesus this morning? Is that your goal? Do you consider yourself in the kingdom of God? Well, first you must do this. Deny yourself. That's the the call of the Christian. That's the call to the Christian. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it. Many of you are familiar with this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your wants. Die even to your needs. Throw yourself on the mercy of God and make it your aim to please him. We're speaking of the kingdom of God and particularly in mind is our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ, the Messiah, the king of this kingdom. The same principles that govern that relationship with our Father would also govern our relationships with those around us in a horizontal plane. So you want a good marriage this morning? Practical help for you? Just right along the path, we'll pick it up. If you want a a healthy marriage, you want a better marriage, die to self. Deny yourself. You want to be a good friend? Some of you this morning wondering, "I, I want to know, How can I have more friends? How can I have any friends? Die to self. You want to continue to contribute to society in a godly and healthy way. How do you do that? This is going to help you. Die to self. Deny yourself. You want to be effective in ministry? Die to self. You want to follow Jesus? Die to self. Deny it. The Bible says this, Jesus, our Lord, even loved God and loved people. And that all of the law, it is summed up and hangs on those things. God first and others second. There is a desire in your life. And then there is God's, God's desire for your life. And the question that Jesus is asking of you this morning is which will you choose? Will you deny yourself? Will you make it your aim to please God? Or will you make it your aim to please yourself? So we need to deny ourselves, but what what else does it say? It also says, take up his cross. This this metaphor, really, of, of a man picking up his cross, a condemned man working to, uh, to take his, that horizontal beam of his cross and he picks it up and he, he knows that that's the very device that his enemies are going to use to snuff his life out. And he carries that device where? To the place of his execution. And Jesus is saying that that's what we're to do. And while at this point in time that he's saying it, Jesus has not been crucified. He's still a man that is laying down his life, and this is not a language or or a metaphor that is foreign to the disciples and to the crowd that's hearing it. Jesus is saying that we're to deny ourselves if we're to be a follower of him, if we're to be in the kingdom of God, and we're to take up our cross. What that means is to be ready to endure suffering for being a follower of Jesus and even be willing to die for following Jesus. It means seeking to obey God even when it could mean jail time. But it also means sharing your faith with your neighbors who don't even know the gospel. It means living a life consistent with the gospel even in the little things. And it means serving your neighbor even without getting recognized. Taking up your own cross It's not necessarily celebrating others as they carry their God given cross, nor does it mean evaluating others' method of carrying their cross. And that may be a small part of what you are to do, but it says, take up his cross. That personal pronoun modifies the cross. Each and every one of us, we have a cross that we're called to bear. You're to die to self by carrying the cross that God has given to you. Would you be a disciple of Jesus? Pick up your cross. And so Jesus requires of you that you deny yourself, but he also requires of you that you carry your cross. It's likely that your cross is not fun. That me that's a, that's part of this metaphor. It probably hurts. It may mean that you're being misunderstood. It may mean forgiving someone who sinned against you and no one but God ever knows about it. It may mean never being famous or even being known. It may mean never getting a thank you. It may mean taking a stand publicly, though you will suffer for it in some way. And yet, this is the command that Jesus gives to his followers. The third command for the would-be follower of Christ there, in that verse is, and follow me. Now, it's interesting if you look at this verse. To deny your cross, or sorry, to, 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 to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and to follow Jesus, these are all imperatives. Which is to say, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to do these things. It's not an option. You have to do them. But the first two are acts of committal. There are things that you actually do. You deny yourself and you pick up your cross. But the third act here, that third imperative, is an act of continuing. And it modifies, really, the, the first two acts. And so it's, it's present active. In other words, you, you can't stop. You don't stop. It, it is to say that if you pick up your cross today, you need to pick up your cross tomorrow. If you denied yourself yesterday, you need to deny yourself today and tomorrow. And that we keep on doing it. We keep on carrying, We keep on following. And so deny yourself. Pick up your cross and keep on following Jesus. Walk the way that he has walked. Walk behind him on the same path. And as the dust that he kicks up on the path to Golgotha is stirred up, may that also land on you and you suffer also. Walk the way that he's walked on the same path. He's taking you where he has been. When he says, follow me and take up your cross, he's not telling you Christian to do something that he is not intimately familiar with. He literally took up his cross. And he carried it to the place of execution. I love Paul and how it sews together. He says, follow me. How? As I follow Christ. This is a man who laid down his comforts. He laid down his rights. He was misunderstood. He was abused. And yet he did all these things because of the call of Jesus on his life to what? To come and to die. Paul, knowing what the cross, what his cross feels like, denying himself, following Jesus, looks to us and he says, follow me as I follow Christ. You see, the path of Christianity, the path toward the, into the kingdom of God is one of suffering. It is one of rejection. It is one of denying oneself and of carrying one's cross. When you hear Jesus laying down the rules of the kingdom, you might begin to feel a sting in your heart as you realize that you, maybe like Peter, had something else in mind. We've seen the the kingdom that Jesus has explained to us. And now let's look at Peter's. You see, because as Jesus begins to talk, we see that Peter's is quite different than Jesus's. You see, in Peter's kingdom... Instead of deny yourself, no, it's exalt yourself. That's, the, that's rule number one in Peter's kingdom. Maybe that's rule number one in your kingdom. And if we're all honest this morning, we'll admit that that mantra, that desire lies at the heart of every single one of us and possibly even motivates every action or has the potential to motivate every action that we have, even as Christians ourselves, that our own lives, that we would be exalted. We want to be the best. We want to be thought of as the greatest. We want people to see us in our good times, and we want to pretend and erase the bad ones. We want them to know the good things about us and know none of the evil. Sadly, sometimes the, the hardest part of seeing our own sin and coming to grips with that is the awareness that we're not as awesome as we thought we were. Because we want to be exalted and to deny ourselves, to put others first. That's not what's happening, not in Peter's kingdom. We see that in the lives of the disciples. Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, Will you you let me sit next to you on your right hand, can I be like the guy that doesn't really do anything but looks like he does everything? Maybe he has like a stick or a sword or something. Maybe it's made out of gold. Can that be me? I want to be that guy. Oh, you want to just not answer the question? I'm going to go get my mom. She'll take care of this, right? This is what is at the heart of each and every one of us, that we be exalted. We want to be heard. We want to be honored. And moving forward, what about this next point? Pick up your cross. Are you kidding me? Not, no, not in Peter's kingdom. It's deny your cross. Deny your cross. To deny your cross is to deny serving others to deny your cross is to forgive those who sinned against you or to not forgive, I'm sorry. And to remain bitter against them. I want to ask you this morning, I don't know what your cross is. But what is the cross that Jesus has called you to bear? And he's not called us all to bear the same one, not exactly. But what's that thing that you have to get real low, to get real humble to accomplish, to to get down real low, maybe even on one knee, to slide your hand underneath that beam and then hoist it up onto your shoulder? What is the thing that threatens to kill your pride? What is it? What is the thing that threatens to snuff out your personal dreams, the dreams of your heart? And that if you were to follow God, if you were to pick up your cross, it would end. you tempted as Peter to deny your cross? It's interesting. Peter, it is said, died on a cross. Jesus told him that he would in so many words. We'll get to the end of Peter's life here in just a moment, but it's quite different. At one point in Peter's life, he's in his own kingdom, operating by his own principles that are contrary to the principles of God. And yet at the end of his life, we see something completely different. He literally and figuratively picked up his cross and denied himself. And yet the temptation is to deny your cross. Maybe part of your cross is serving on a ministry team. There are many ways that that you can serve the Lord, you can serve the church throughout the week, from setting up, from tearing down, organizing chairs, vacuuming, serving coffee, watching children, teaching them the word of God, vacuuming, whatever it is. So many other options for you and some small way to carry your cross as it relates to the church. But carrying your cross is, is, is much more than serving in the church, but it is no less. But what is the cross that God has called you to bear? And are, are you willing this morning to bear it? Or will you deny it? Peter wanted to deny his cross, and I hope that you don't this morning. But lastly, the, the counterfeit the counterfeit option that we see in Peter's kingdom as it as we contrast Peter's and Jesus's is instead of following Jesus, the temptation, the mantra in Peter's kingdom is to follow your heart. That's what our culture wants us to believe. That's the direction that most of us are heading. Follow your heart. I'm gonna ask you this when we talk about the heart. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that you do what you do? This is incredibly simple. I didn't come up with it. I'll parrot it to you this morning. Why do you do what you do? Here's why. We do what we do because we want what we want. We do what we do because we want what we want. Why did Peter reject Jesus' teaching that if you follow him, And that he himself would suffer. Why did Peter reject that? Because that's not what he wanted. Deep down in his heart, that's not what he wanted. And yeah, he'll continue to walk on the path with Jesus, but in his heart, his feet are doing one thing, but his heart is pumping the brakes. His heart's not in that. That's not what he wants for himself. And so instead of following Jesus, he determines to follow his heart. What we see Peter doing this morning, it really is a thoughtful culmination of of all of of, of Peter's personal depravity, coupled with his cultural understanding, even, listen, parental upbringing. There's a warning here for all of us, particularly if we're parents. That Peter, the way that he thought about his own life, the way that he thought about the Messiah, was Peter-centered. It was all about him. And parents, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll end up raising children who believe the same thing. Follow your heart. Do whatever you want. Whatever's in there, just be true to that. And yet Jesus is warning, hey, don't follow your heart. It's wicked. Your heart is selfish. Your heart is evil. No, follow Jesus. We called this section Peter's kingdom, but really it could have been just as easily called Satan's kingdom. We already talked about Satan once before as he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. But I also want you to remember this. Remember how Satan fell. Once an exalted angel, now a cast out, cast down enemy of God. He he exalted himself. He denied his calling and he went after his own heart. That's what he wanted. And look where that ended him. And so why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Not just because he's a tempter. Not just because he's trying to tempt Jesus to to abandon the path of obedience to the Father. Furthermore, because Peter, deep down in his heart, wants comfort and safety and all the things that are expended on his own person. And this is the same. It's a mirror image of Satan. To Peter's idea of a proper messianic kingdom Jesus offers this warning. Verse 35 For whoever would save his life will lose it. You try to spend your life and all your time and all your resources saving yourself, uh, protecting yourself, what will end up happening in the end? You'll lose it. And this is just one of the statements that clearly underlines the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom that Jesus is speaking about. You try to spare your life, and you'll lose it. But the second part of verse 35 is this: But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Here, here's what he's, he's saying: life, life, life refers to the fulfillment of all your desires. Of all the the fulfillment of everything you could possibly want. Pleasures forevermore. And if you try to keep it in this life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it in this life, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus and his message, then you will gain it and it will be secure in heaven. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts. Wherever your heart is, there is your treasure also. And Jesus is saying, you want to be happy? You want to be fulfilled? These are good things. You want pleasure forevermore? Don't be so foolish to spend all of your time trying to save things here in this life because it can be destroyed. The only safe place to invest is in heaven. And furthermore, Jesus is saying, do you want your heart to be intact as well? If your treasure's in heaven where nothing can harm it, your heart's going to be with it and nothing can affect your heart in other words he's saying pleasure fulfillment and joy are found when we give our lives in this life in this time for christ and for his gospel verse 36 what what does it profit amanda to, to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul there's no answer there's a clear answer but jesus really isn't asking you to answer What what really do you gain if you have the whole world but you lose your soul? You've gained nothing and lost everything. What can a man give in return for his soul? If we were to weigh these things out, what can you really give? It's obvious. There's nothing in this life. The culmination of all things don't equal your life and its value. Verse 38. Jesus has given them some incredible instruction. He has contrasted the, the temptation of Satan's kingdom with his own. There's a choice. There's a, there's a road split right before the disciples and between the, before the crowd. And Jesus is saying, then in that statement, or in that, in that situation, in verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man Also be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I'm going to talk about two words: adulterous, highlighting this idea of sinful and unfaithful. There's a generation in that day that were unfaithful to God. They cared little for the kingdom of God and more and everything, really, for themselves. What's in it for me? What does this Messiah do for me but more than this Messiah over here? They're unfaithful, cheating in a sense on God. The second word I wanna highlight is whoever is ashamed. It's an interesting word. When we think of this word ashamed, we think of it more of like emotional, internal. I'm ashamed of something. It's my disposition towards something, but it's not necessarily an action. But what's in mind here is not really just an emotion, just an inward something or another that's taking place and you don't really know what it is, and, but it's moving forward. This idea of ashamed is saying, I don't like what's being said. I don't want to be associated with that, and therefore I'll distance myself from it. Which is what we do when we're ashamed of something. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Whoever is ashamed, whoever distance themselves from Jesus and from his message... In this time, and day and age, when they need to hear it more than anything, they need to see that more than anything, Jesus says, of you will I also be ashamed. Of you also will I distance myself. Will I not share my glory? Will I not share my grace with? And I stand before the Father with holy angels. Ashamed of what? Of the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. It's foolishness to many. It's shameful for many that Jesus would be crucified, that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, would be killed on a cross, and that he would carry his own cross to the place of execution. For many, it's appalling. Now, in our day and age, in this generation or this century, it's not so shameful that one die on the cross. As a matter of fact, that one lay down his life for his friends is pretty in- incredible. It's not lost on us. Even if you're not a believer, it's not lost on you to understand that what Jesus has done or what some of Christians claim that he has done is a beautiful thing. And yet there are things about Jesus's message that are tough to hear, tough to stand with. And even yet, then they would lead many of us and tempt many of us to distance ourselves from Jesus and his message Most of our shame today, it's connected with the area where the gospel of Jesus confronts our culture. It's in the area most often today in the area of gender or in the area of sexuality or in the sanctity of human life. And in these areas, God has spoken incredibly clear. And yet for so many, there's a temptation in our hearts to be ashamed and to distance ourselves from the message of God. And those times we end up finding our our, our comfort. We end up confiding in another message or another Messiah. Those times we pine for another explanation of who God is and how he will save his people. And from that adulterous action, we must repent and get back to the path of Christ. And remember, we have to repent at a heart level. What caused Peter to deny what what Jesus was teaching about the Messiah? What has caused you to supplant that message? It's your heart. Worshiping something other than God. Worshiping comfort more than obedience. Worshiping prestige more than humility. I love this quote by Lane and Tripp and how people change. It says this, the typical patterns of false worship include the physical is more important than the spiritual The temporal is more valuable valuable than the eternal. And relationship with a a person is more satisfying than relationship with God. Your desire overrules what God says you need. And can I tell you this? Whatever false messiah you are leaning into this morning, whatever version of messiah you're holding on to, it's puny, it's ineffective, and it's far less glorious. Mark knew all too well that Peter learned that lesson. And that's what's so beautiful about this passage. Peter was struggling to grasp the message of who Jesus really is, but eventually he does. And the Peter of, of this passion, Week was quite different than the Peter during Pentecost. Quite different. He finally got this. He finally grasped that God's kingdom is incompatible with any other kingdom. And with that in mind, he denied himself. He picked up his cross and he followed Jesus quite literally. And so the question then is, will you? Will you do the same? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with a clarity that perhaps we've not had Days gone by. And yet as we've looked at the life of Peter and compared it with our own, perhaps we've seen some similarities. Perhaps some of us have seen where we've been following another path, trailing after another Messiah, and from that we repent God, we ask that by your spirit that you would show us the areas where we've done such a thing. And that we would determine to not do it anymore. Father, that we would repent, that we would confess that even to our brothers and sisters to be held accountable to. And that we truly, moving forward, would deny ourselves. That we would pick up our cross and that we would follow you, Jesus. Before we enter into a time of communion, I want to invite you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and to reflect in your own life. Where is it that you have stepped off the path? And is there perhaps another Messiah? Take a moment, reflect. I can assure you that the Messiah that Jesus is teaching about It's far more glorious and powerful than you could ever imagine, that you could ever need.